Our scripture reading uh, this morning is found in uh, Genesis 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the word of the Lord. A story worth living. It's been kind of an unusual series for us these past few weeks. Uh, we have been sort of, sort of looking at the, the stories of the culture around us, um, trying to figure out, wrestling with them, how these collective stories, how they influence our, our personal stories, our individual stories. Uh, so we've, we've looked at stories like you only live once, uh, you got you to gotta be true to yourself, uh, faith should be kept private. Next week, it's I decide what's right, and then we'll, we'll close up this series with newer is always better. And, you know, we, we've said throughout, like, that uh, there's a lot that's good in these cultural stories around us. They're just incomplete. And, and because you and I live here now today, we just believe them. Like we hear these, these faith assumptions around us and we, we don't even recognize it. We don't even question them because we're, we're so much swimming in these waters. And so we've been trying to like step out of it and say, okay, what, what is the better story? Now, of course, we're not the first people to, to wrestle with this. We've said this throughout, but God inspired this guy named Moses to write this book called Genesis that was written as God's people left Egypt into the land of Canaan written to confront the stories of the cultures in which we're surrounding them, uh, to give them a better story. We've been doing the same together. Let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump into Genesis in a moment. God, I'm so grateful that your word continues to speak. God, even in a passage like this that's so, so old, uh, so mysterious, um, God, I pray that you would show us who you are, who we are, um, what sin is, uh, and how, how you can make it right. We trust you for these things, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be spending our time there this morning. Well, the cultural story that we are going to try to just kind of unpack a little bit uh, today is maybe best summarized in a little tiny silly phrase. Maybe you've heard it. You do you. Do you know this one? You do you. Some of you use this phrase, some of you hate this phrase, others of you need to Google this phrase. Um, that's okay, I had to Google it earlier this week just to make sure I knew what it was that I was trying to say here. Uh, regardless though, all of us tend to believe this phrase, or, or at least the, the religious or philosophical assumptions behind it. Because you do you is essentially, it's a statement of the nature of morality, Right? Uh, that when you're faced with a moral dilemma, how do you decide? Well, you take care of you. I'll take care of me. Mind your own business. Just do no harm, right? You do 
you do who you you do you now Say that fast, lots. Okay, now individual freedom is good. So there's a lot that's good about this phrase. I mean, we are individually responsible. And frankly, if we all, like all humans just decided to do no harm, like you could do worse than that for a philosophy, right? It's, it's there, there's, there's good that's there. But is it really enough to just do you? There's a New York Times article a couple years ago, uh, how you do you perfectly captures our narcissistic culture. It's fascinating. Let me read a little bit for, you, for us. Uh, it says there, in a world where the selfie has become our dominant art form, I love that, <laughs> phrases like you do you provide a philosophical scaffolding for our ever-evolving, ever more complicated narcissism. Instead of serving the establishment, when it comes to moral decisions, right, God, religion, social norms, instead of doing that, you do you empowers the individual, and it says, regardless of how shallow that individual is. And yet, at the same time, so that's the New York Times sort of critiquing it, at the same time, the, the Urban Dictionary, I don't know if you know, like this, it's a, on, like a crowdsourcing slang dictionary online. You can look that up too uh, if you have to Google it, Urban Dictionary. Um, But basically it states doing you is all anyone ever needs to do. In fact, kind of alludes to the fact that this moral code will never let you down. Just do you, I'll do me, do no harm, and mind your own business. But is it really enough? I mean, what happens when you just do you? Well, to answer that question, we have to look at the time and place in which that philosophy was first used. It was a long time ago in a garden, you know, far away. And not just what we see here in Genesis 3, it's not just about their sin or their temptation. What we see in this ancient story is the nature of morality itself and the nature of every, every sin and every temptation since. As the serpent said to Eve, hon, just do you. Now, even as we start this, I realize that the, uh, it's pretty hard to believe, right? The story. I mean, I mean, first of all, you've, you've got to like, in a post-enlightenment world, we have to get our mind around this, the existence of Satan, okay? The embodiment of, of evil. That, that itself, that's hard enough to believe for us. Uh, and then talking about a, you know, talking snake, we might as well be describing the troll that lives under the bridge, right? And I'm, I'm with you. I realize there's questions. If you have them, uh, text them to, to this number. We'll wrestle with it uh, on Facebook Live. We don't have time to unpack all of those here. Um, do it. It's going to be fun, right? Talking snakes would be great. Um, text your questions. But the reality is whatever's going on here, however we're, we're meant to interpret it, it is, it is mysterious at best, to say the least. And yet... When we, when we witness real evil, like, like another school shooting, uh, a terrorist attack, a nation ravaged by genocide or systemic racism, like when, you, when you're faced with real evil, I mean, moments like that, you can't help but wonder if there is something out there trying to destroy us, right? If, if there may be, just maybe, there is cosmic personal evil that's seeking to destroy what God has made. I know it's difficult to believe, but in those moments, it's not quite as hard, is it? 
We're just so insulated here, aren't we? But look at verse 1. Let's start off here. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, stop, stop there. Again, the snake's not just a snake. He's the embodiment of, of evil. He's Satan. And, and really, he's the, he's the first theologian, uh, the first philosopher, because immediately what he tries to do is shatter Eve's belief that God has been good to her. Like he's trying to reframe her theology, right? Uh, essentially, the, the serpent hates God and sets out on this mission to attack God's image. That's, you know, that's us. And every sin since is an attack on God's image. Every, every sin is, is an attempt for us to deny our own humanity and say we are, we are ultimately free. We can make our own decisions. We don't, we don't need God. It's an attempt to make ourselves God. And the reality is anytime we, we try to make ourselves more, we always end up with less. And he uses the only method he can, deceit, doubt, and a clear jab at Eve's desire for freedom. I mean, that's really what do you is about, right? It's moral freedom. Do your, do your own thing. Just don't hurt anybody. And so he says to Eve, just do you. It's not that big a deal, right? And this, this leads then to the first reason why a you do you or do no harm philosophy just, it doesn't work. It ignores a vital truth that every choice is a battlefield. Every choice is a battlefield. If this story is true, and I know, I know, right? But if, if it is, then it means there is a war surrounding us, seeking to destroy what God has made. Seeking to, to destroy his image ref, reflected in us. And I know, like, we, we rarely see it in, in the comforts of suburbia, right? We are so insulated from true evil that we, we feel like it's outside of us. It's not really that big of a deal, right? But if it's true, if there is this war, if there is real evil in our world, you cannot just do you. Every decision matters. Because, because you and I, we're... We're always being formed by our decisions. Every time, are we becoming more like God's image or less? And not only are we always being formed with every decision, we're, we're forming those around us implicitly by our relationships and our, our connections with them. And Satan is after the image of, God, of the God he despises. Last weekend, I, I went to uh, Ken Burns at the Midland Ken Burns, you know Ken Burns, right? He's the, he makes these really long documentaries, like super long. Uh, Civil War, baseball, right? They're all on PBS. Um, ridiculously long. Brilliant guy. Um, and went and heard him talk about his newest documentary. It begins airing tonight on PBS uh, on the Vietnam War. It's 18 hours long. That's, that's Ken Burns. Um, and it looks amazing. So I went to this event with a friend, and we heard him talk about it. We watched about an hour of the, of the show, of the film. Uh, and then he came out and, and talked with uh, some others, like this, this Vietnam veteran named John Musgrave, who lives, lives in Warrance. And, and he told some of his story of what it was like being there and described this, this unbelievable scene of, of him and his platoon being ambushed by everyone around them in the jungle. Uh, and like, as he describes it, he was as good as dead. He had a hole in his chest the size, so big you could put your fist through it. He was dead. Uh, and yet, even so in that moment, his friends, these fellows, they rescued him. 
being shot themselves. And he, I mean, he's being dragged out. And it was like, it is absolutely hopeless. There's nothing you can do. And yet still, they're going after him. And the reality is, like, no soldier ever says, you do you. It doesn't work. You take care of you, I'll take it. No, it's, it, that's not how it works. There's too much at stake. So let me ask, do you believe there is real evil in our world? If so, then every choice is a battlefield. And you can't, you can't just do you and let bygones be bygones. Okay, so back to the story here. Let's look at the conversation. I'm always fascinated with this because Adam and Eve, they have unprecedented access to God. And yet, instead of talking to God in the story, they, they talk about him, right? That's how they go. Verse, verse one. The snake said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's kind of like, now Eve, let me just, let me get this straight. This good God of yours, he made all this. And you, can't, you can't eat any of it? Like, what, what's his problem? Which, which isn't true, right? And Eve, she corrects him. She says, no, no, we can't. We can eat from any tree we want. Just not, just not that tree. If we eat from that tree, then we're, we're going to die. Um, so we're not going to do that. And he's like, you will not die. And, and I know it's a, it's a small thing here, but this is where, where every temptation, I think, is in common. It all begins, not just, not just what happens here and this, this sin, we kind of put this sometimes in a different category, it's so, so big and monumental, but like our sin as well, it begins so subtly, doesn't it? it? It's just like it's not even really that big of a deal, right? He twists God's word, words, and once they're kind of twisted, right, he denies them. What did God say? We do the same, don't we? We pick and choose all the time. We love the stuff on love and grace, right? Forgiving your enemies. But we conveniently forget the inconvenient parts, the hard parts, the things that are culturally weird or seem outdated to us. And we, we push them aside. I'm sure God didn't mean me or us when he said something. That's, that's step one, right? Step one is just casting the tiniest bit of doubt on what God has said. Step two then for every temptation, is that we begin to doubt God's love. Temptation always paints the creator in a negative light. Like, too bad for you, you can't eat the trees. From, I mean, what a terrible God you have, right? And even as he calls it out, like verse 5, the, the snake says, Come on, Eve. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Temptation always says, God is holding you back. He doesn't know what's best for you. He, he doesn't have your best interests. God, he's stingy, right? He doesn't really love you. And, and how, many, how many times have I played this game? Like, God, if you really knew, if you really understood, if you really cared, then it'd be okay, Right? Then it'd be fine. I could, I could do this other thing. If you really understood me, and we imagine God as this cosmic killjoy, and who wants to obey a God like that? And once we're in this place, right, doubting God's words, I mean, what did he say again? Doubting his love for us, maybe I do know what's best for me. I mean, the, the third step, it's just this subtle nudge towards what feels like freedom. Eve. 
Like, do you know that you could be like God? Like, you can, you can be free from him. You can know right and wrong like he knows it. And what's so interesting to me is Eve, she didn't even know she wanted more until this moment. One Old Testament scholar writes, the essence of the serpent's message is that God is limiting Eve, restricting her from her full humanity. And today we hear this philosophy everywhere, right? Be liberated, be free, self-actualize, unleash your inner potential. Whenever you hear this, have no doubt that what you hear is the hiss of the serpent, the temptation to become something apart from what you were created to be. But here's the deal. I kind of sympathize with Eve, right? Because she's, she's, in a sense, she's right. Her freedom is restricted. There is a boundary on her life. But what do you think? Is she freer in submission or freer in rebellion? I mean, because I got to tell you, right, today you and I, we believe that any boundary is a restriction, right? Any boundary is, that's like, that's a hamper of our freedom. There can't be any rules or regulations. We're, we're repressive and we, we push them aside. Like, no, if I'm going to be free, there can be, there can be no rules, no lies. It's, it's, this, it's the same lie, right, that, that we end up believing. That we have to get rid of every boundary if we're going to be free. But what if those boundaries are for our good? What if we were never meant to have ultimate knowledge of good and evil? What, what if I don't know what's best for me? And yet we, we humans, myself included, like we're, we are like the train that curses the tracks, right? Stupid tracks, always telling me where to go, what to do. How do they know, right? Today, I decide. I'm free, I do my own thing, right? And we, we think it's freedom. <laughs> Do you ever wonder if just maybe, maybe, maybe the greatest freedom in life comes through submission? Submission to the one who made, made both the train and the tracks? What if instead we just obeyed? No. I guess it's kind of a moot point, isn't it? Good old Eve, bless her heart. I mean, here, here she is, and, you know, let's not, let's not be naive. We're there with her. We'd, we'd have done the same, wouldn't, wouldn't we? We do it all the time. Like, we, again, we, we put this in some category, like, oh, man, Eve, what were you thinking eating a piece of fruit, right? Like, we do this all the time, you and I. Oh, Eve. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now I'm free. Finally free. Free like the wind of a hurricane. And here's, here's the real reason you can't just do you. And do no harm. And, and I know you're probably not going to believe me when I say it. I don't even believe it half the time. And yet I'm convinced that it is absolutely true. It's what, it's what we see here in the story. Yes, every choice is a battlefield. Every temptation begins so subtly. And third, finally, every sin ruins 
everything. I told you you wouldn't believe it. Every sin ruins everything. And here, here's the ultimate example. With a bite, death comes into our world. With it, divorce and, and rape and oppression. Their first son will be the world's first murderer. That's how long it takes for it to trickle out. Cancer breezes through the window. Greed and selfishness, disease and destruction, all of it comes in in this moment. Friends, it's not, it's not just with that first sin. If every sin is a battle for God's image in you, if every, if every sin is ultimately a rejection of God's love for you, then every sin shapes you. It changes you. You're becoming the kind of person that chooses those things and you're shaping the people around you, every one that you encounter by who you are. I mean, let, me, let me give an example. And, and we can do this, I'm convinced, with any, any sin. I'm going to pick an easy one. Um, I mean, an easy one to see the connections, but like lust, right? Because lust is like the classic example in our culture of like, dude, you're not hurting anybody, right? Doesn't matter. Like, close the door. It's fine, right? It's keep it behind. Out, it's, it, it does no harm. No one knows. The reality is every study shows that you are, you are rewiring your brain to objectify women, like 50% of the world's population as objects. And if you don't think that impacts your relationship with your wife or the relationship you have with any woman around you, like you're a fool. And not only that, I mean, you're contributing to the ongoing problem of sex trafficking in our world, right? It's, it ripples beyond that. And if you have kids, like your son sees how you look at women. Don't think he doesn't. Your daughter, your daughter will notice it as well, and the ripples keep going, right? And this, again, it's an easy example, but everything we do, every choice we make, it, it goes out beyond us. You cannot sin and do no harm. There's always harm. Voltaire once said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. And even, even the phrase, do no harm, can we just stop for a second and admit how ridiculous that is? Because it presupposes that we have all knowledge about what harm is. And, and frankly, we don't even agree with people sitting next to us, more or less cultures around the world. And so what it comes down to, if, you, if your philosophy of morality is do no harm, what you're really saying is do no harm according to the way my culture defines it, because my culture is better than your culture. And now today is the best culture we've ever had in the history of the world. Do you want, like, do you want to say that, Right? I mean, not, not only is it, is it uh, or insufficient, it's, it's just ridiculously arrogant. We don't have all knowledge of good and evil. And you and I, we could play this game all day for in that moment, one taste of the fruit. And I tell you, this verse always gets me, number seven. Then the eyes of both were opened. It's like they saw for the very first time. And they knew that they were naked. Which is more than just a literal statement of what they were wearing on their bodies, right? Exposed for who we are and what we've done. I just even imagine, what was it like to feel shame for the very first time? I mean, having lived in a perfect place and perfect relationship with one another and with God and all of a sudden this deep sense of regret and shame. 
Of course they hide from God. And, and instantly they start blaming each other, right? And, and trust evaporates. And we haven't trusted each other since, have we? This is what sin does and the, the ripple effects just keep spreading. Some of us right now are drowning in our shame. Others of us are caught up in the endless cycle of, of blame and shifting our problems onto others. And we call it freedom. How do we go back to the garden? I mean, that's the question, isn't it? Like you hear this, I think no matter whether you believe it or not, like don't you, don't you want to go back to that place of, of innocence? Even if it is a place of submission and freedom to the God who made us. Well, I, I want to recommend just the three short prayers for us this week. For any of us, whether you're a Christian or not, in those moments of temptation, when, when you are tempted to succumb to a, a false sense of freedom, like to do your own thing, like in those moments, if you want to be free, let, let's pray these three things. First, when you're wooed by a substitute freedom, because you will later on today, you know, this week, I will too, simply pray, Father, show me the cost of my sin. Just let me see what it costs. Let me see the consequences that I can't see. Let me see where it's rippling. See, let me see how it's forming me and forming the people around me. No sin is ever free. Show me what it costs. Second, Father, remind me what I really want. I've been trying to pray that this week. Not what I think I want, right? Not what I want in a moment of desperation or fear or loneliness or, or whatever, weakness. But what I really want not just pleasure, but joy. Not just money, but security. Not just success, but an identity. And God, remind me that you promised those things to me. Remind me that I want a relationship with my kids more than I want other people's admiration of them. Remind me that I want intimacy more than sex. Remind me that I, I'd rather be known for being a generous person than the car that I drive. Remind me that at the end of my life, I'm going to want to look back and see hours loving and serving, not how many shows I watched on Netflix. God, remind me what I really want. And finally, finally cover me with your love. Father, cover me. Cover me with your love. Imagine being God in that moment. Put yourself in his shoes, right? You just made humans. You've given them everything. Um, like everything, even yourself, right? And they're like, you know what? We're going to go with the serpent, right? We, we choose us instead of you. And now they're hiding from God, drenched in shame, and you, you've been there, I've been there, exposed. And what does our God do? Destroy us? Tell us to get over it or, or get to work, we gotta pay this off, right? This debt? No. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covers us. I mean, can you imagine a God so tender that he would look at us in our shame, fully exposed, and he would clothe us and promise to one day make it right, to do battle with the serpent. And we know, don't we, like clothes, clothes can't cover our shame. Neither can any amount of good works or success or others' approval or, or any of these attempts at personal freedom that we think are going to tell us that life is okay and we're, we're okay. It will never be enough. Only God can cover us. And he has made a way, not just through the skins of a dead animal, but through the death of his son. 
that he himself has come for us, that the consequence of our freedom is death, but Jesus dies in our place. Our God dies in our place. And not even death could keep him down. He crushes the snake with his resurrection. He promises to redeem all who trust in him, to make us whole and to one day lead us back into the garden. He loves you too much to let you do you. Instead, let him clothe you. For in in submission to him, covered by his love, that's where we find freedom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for making us for making us beautiful and in your image, for giving us a good world. God, we are sorry for the ways that we messed it up and the way we continue to feel the pain and agony of our own sin and the brokenness of of the world around us. God, would you show us the cost of our sin, every one of them, big and small. Show us what it costs. And would you remind us what we really want, truly what we want, not what we think we want, but what we want from you. And Father, would you always, in failure and in our our maybe tiny successes, God, would you cover us with your love? Show us your goodness and your forgiveness and help us to worship you now for that. That is why we're here. That is why we gather, knowing that you have covered us. Give us that freedom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I love that song because it's a reminder that I am in need of God and I'm in need of his, his help and his, his direction. But what I, what I find and why I like to sing that song is because I often find myself doing it the opposite, right? Trying to do it on my own and not wanting to live in the boundaries that God has set for me. And when that happens, I find myself naked, exposed, ashamed, just like Adam and Eve, right? Grasping for something better. And yet scripture tells us there is a better way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a good reminder. I have a personal application that I'd love to share and challenge you guys with as well. Uh, Nathan gave us a couple things. If we have it on the screen, it's pulled up. The three questions we asked, how do we go back to the garden? And so I've written this out on a little note card, maybe a challenge to you as well, or maybe a screenshot on your phone, but just to remind us, Lord, would you show me the cost of my sin Would you remind me what I really want? And would you cover me with your love? May that be our prayer as we go out. And also as we go out, and especially leaning into that third point about covering me with your love, I want to read from Isaiah for our benediction. Please receive this benediction. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Amen. Go in peace.